Welcome to the Woman Warriors Podcast. You worry, I worry, we all do. If you're paying attention to the world today, there's a lot for women to feel worried and anxious about. As we explore the worries with curiosity and compassion, we learn to live more authentically and unleash the warrior within. Someone who is strong, capable, and resilient, come what may. It's time to stop battling against yourself and start using your powers to meet everyday challenges with energy, purpose, and bravery. Now here's your host, Elizabeth Cush. Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cush, and I am a licensed clinical professional counselor in Annapolis, Maryland, where I am seeing clients virtually all online all the time. And although there are challenges with that, I am happy to say that the work that I'm doing with my clients, as well as the work I do with my own therapist, it works. Um, Being online is okay. And yes, I miss seeing people face to face, but I'm so grateful and so happy to be able to continue to do my work. You can find out more at progressioncounseling.com or more about the podcast on womanwarriors.com. You can also sign up for updates or uh, the newsletter at progressioncounseling.com forward slash Elizabeth's dash newsletter. Today, we are going to be talking to Dr. Sonia Lott, uh, who is a Philadelphia clinician who specializes in helping clients with grief and grieving and complicated grief. She is going to shatter some of our uh, preconceived notions about grief and the stages of grief because she's all about the research and what the, the true experience of grief and healing are. She is also going to share how the pandemic is impacting our experience of grief and grieving pretty profoundly. So Dr. Sonia Lott earned her PhD in counseling psychology and has been licensed as a psychologist since 1991. She's licensed in Pennsylvania and Florida and soon will be licensed in several other states. She maintains an online private clinical practice devoted to helping individuals transform their experiences of acute and complicated grief. She completed advanced training in complicated grief therapy and evidence-based treatment protocol at the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University's School of Social Work, where she is currently an associate. She is also trained in brain spotting, a brain-based trauma intervention. In addition, Sonia is the founder and CEO of ChemPsych, LLC, Continuing Education in Multicultural Psychology, which offers continuing education that supports mental health professionals in cultivating a multicultural orientation and is approved by the American Psychological Association to sponsor continuing education for psychologists. She serves on the advisory board of several nonprofits, including Whites Confronting Racism, an organization in Philadelphia 
that offers workshops for white people who desire to challenge racism and strengthen their work for racial justice. The Conference on Death and Afterlife Studies, an educational, social, and spiritual space for those seeking evidence of life after death, and the Therapy Aid Coalition, an organization with a large network of licensed trauma-informed mental health professionals that are immediately able to respond to crises occurring in the United States. Here's my conversation with Sonia. Hi, Sonia, and welcome to the Woman Warriors podcast. Hi, Liz. I'm um, really grateful to be here. Ah, so grateful for you being here. I know <laughs> you. we all have a lot on our plates, but I know you have a lot on your plate right now. And yeah. with the pandemic and uh, all the social justice stuff happening that's so important to pay attention to, and I know you're deep in a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, if you wouldn't mind, because the audience doesn't know you, could you tell us a little bit about you and uh, what inspired you to do the work that you're doing? So I'm a licensed psychologist and I'm actually living in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm licensed in Pennsylvania and Florida and soon some additional um, states. And I knew when I was nine years old that I wanted to be a psychologist. Hmm. And so I sort of became who I was. Hmm. Um, I feel like um, there were many roads um, that I didn't understand as a kid that were available as a psychologist, like teaching, which I also love. Mm-hmm. But um, I just always knew that this was the work I was here to do. Not grief at that time, but as a psychologist, as a clinician. Hmm. Um, and... and- and Go as ahead. a as a nine year old, how did you know that's what you wanted to do? It was just I don't know. I think I was trying to save myself and my family and extended family mm-hmm. or loved ones. I don't know, mm-hmm. but um, I would save my allowance money. And there was um, a bookstore. I grew up in the Chicago area called Crock and Bertano's. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like what Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. Um, was uh, until Amazon. Yeah. Uh, and um, I would save my allowance and I would buy books on Freud. I don't know, you know, no matter how smart you are at nine years old, you're still very limited in your ability to think abstractly. So I don't know what sense I made of his work at that time, but um, I bought Victor Franco in search of meaning. And um, mm. I, I don't know. And so I would... I had a few diagnoses, you know, like really nervous, too sad. And I would write letters to people um, and tell them of my love for them and my concern for their mental health. And my prescriptions were always one of the books. I really thought that the books (laughs) would be the cure. So I don't know. I just always was. Yeah. (laughs) I just had to get the legitimacy behind me and the permission to quote, treat people. I had yeah. to get the degrees and then at, wait for people to show up. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> and so then what, what uh, steered you down the path of really focusing on complicated grief and grief? Well, I was, I was aware that I was called to doing grief work when I was an undergraduate. And um, 
I was really afraid of it then. I mean, I was too young. And then when I was 21 and went to graduate school, I took um, a death, dying, and bereavement course, and I cried the whole semester. (laughs) So um, I had a lot of um, growing up to do and and dealing with my fear of death, and I needed to experience death and, you know, um, manage the triggers that come with loss when other people talk about theirs. And so then in 2015, um, I had been teaching full-time for... um, well, I taught for full time almost 20 years and never thought I was going back to clinical. Wow. And my mom died. And, um, you know, to date, that has been the most profound loss mm-hmm. that I've ever experienced. Yeah. And I was so profoundly broken open is the only way that I can really describe it. And I knew that day that down the road, once I allowed myself to have my process, that... I was going to return to clinical work and I was going to, uh, out of gratitude and grace, to offer the same transformational process um, or something similar to other people. And then also I have to be honest and say that my mom now bosses me around in ways that I didn't let her do in the physical. (laughs) And (laughs) she told me very soon after she died that this was my next step, my way of finding meaning really am I living without her? And she um, has promised, she promised and has shown that she's working with me Mm -hmm. um, in this process. So I'm Mm -hmm. being obedient. (laughs) I I love that. Got to listen to your mom, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so um, for so many people and what you hear referenced all the time around grief is these five stages, Kubler-Ross's five oh stages of grief. So can you talk to us a little bit about maybe why we shouldn't be paying so much attention to that? Yeah. First, I just want to express my gratitude for you um, inviting me to, to comment on that. And I was listening to Gail, Gail Crothers' um, podcast with you from in May about equine therapy. Mm-hmm. And she mentioned this, and she said that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who offered us so much in relation to understanding the process of dying, palliative care, near-death experiences, a woman, a psychiatrist who was very much revered, that she proposed these five stages of grief for people who were dying who had gotten a terminal diagnosis. And shortly before she died, she said, hmm, I wonder if this also applies to the grief process that survivors experience. Hmm. Um, She and David Kessler then wrote a book about, based on that hypothesis. And that was, it was published shortly after she died in 2005. Um, She died in 2004. And it's become, like Gail also said, like this cult phenomena, People have latched on to it. And the problem with it is that it's just not a valid theory of the grief process at all. Hmm. There's been a, 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 a plethora of research that refutes the validity of it, uh, not just that um, people who um, believe or believe this theory is, is truth will say, well, you know, um, it, the stages aren't linear, you don't always go through all of them. No, the stages are not. (laughs) And so in addition to the research that has refuted the validity of this experience for 
people who are uh, grieving the loss of a loved one, this saying that there are five stages doesn't tell us anything about what's a function of grief, um, how do people cope with the loss, what happens if you don't go through all the stages, when is clinical intervention needed, and it creates a situation where people, I hear this all of the time uh, with complicated grief, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, I didn't go through the five stages or I think something is wrong with me. And so, you know, it's just really harmful in many ways. And therapists who believe this won't move further to do, they'll stay in the pop psychology and the non-mental health um, um, ideas about grief instead of learning about all of the theories and the plausible research. And so it's really harmful that it's still being promoted. And now there's, quote, a sixth stage where, you know, a psychologist, Robert Niemeyer, spent 20 years publishing over 400 peer-reviewed journal articles about finding meaning. That's not a stage either. So mm -hmm. it's really deceptive. Um, it's not true. It sets people up for complicated grief, um, feeling like something's wrong with their experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. And again, there's so many plausible theories of grief. So yeah. Yeah. I'll, stop, I'll stop there. So maybe talk to us about what are the plausible stages of grief or what are the plausible uh, aspects of grief and what is it that uh, before we get to complicated grief, like yeah. what is the grieving process? Okay. Well, first, uh, acute grief um, responds to the death of a close loved one is um, usually inevitable. You know, we can suppress it in some cases, but yeah, it's inevitable, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you know what that's like. You've also experienced significant loss. Um, yes. Yeah. And it just, it just breaks you down. It just. Yeah, it hurts. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yes. In a way that nothing else can um, yeah. because of the, it's the love, it's a connection. It's the person being so integral part of who you are. Um, yeah. You know, and so um, um, the acute grief is messy. <laughs> That's what we know. <laughs> it is messy and it is normal. And the way through is through. So what the theories tell us, for example, there's a theory by Strobe and Shuk, who also wrote um, uh, a really excellent article peer-reviewed in a peer-reviewed journal, Omega, about the problems with the um, five stages of grief theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's called the dual processing theory of grief. And they talk about the importance of um, oscillating between focusing on the loss and focusing on restoration, like really leaning into all of the aspects of grief and then taking a respite from it. Mm. You know, um, in my work with people with complicated grief, we do that process in a session. And it's recommended that people do that in their day-to-day -day living you know, um, people yeah. think, yeah, people think, um, and this is another thing that's promoted that because grief is an expression of our love, um, that we must stay in grief. We must continue to suffer to show our love or to be loyal to the person who's, I believe, gotten their freedom through leaving their body, mm -hmm. yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so that's one theory. Um, Bill Warden or William Warden also talks about, uh, most theorists talk about tasks associated with integrating one's grief. And so he talks about four tasks. Teresa uh, Randall talks about six tasks. 
but um, the it's leading into the grief, which by the way, and this is another limitation of the Kubler-Ross theory, leaning into your grief is leaning into more than just the sadness and the yearning and the loss, the longing for the person. It's leaning into oftentimes what might become a spiritual crisis, questioning everything that you've ever thought about a quote God and how this yeah. could happen, you know, um, and it's also leaning into the physical aspects of grief, you know, um, and, and, and needing to take care of oneself more, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, um, those are a couple of, you know, Teresa Randall's six stages or six tasks. I'm sorry. See, I'm conditioned to say that. I know, right. (laughs) Six tasks of, um, grief and, um, you know, wardens for tasks of grief, but, um, those are some of the theories, and we believe that it, again, is a natural process. It's just about how do we get to the, quote, other side? How do we integrate the ongoing um, longing and, and, and missing the individual as we move forward with our living with new purpose and meaning and joy? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and and so my brief or, you know, minimal understanding, my I did a little research before you and I talked and, mm-hmm. you know, before this conversation about complicated grief. Yeah. And so uh, I'm going to paraphrase, but what I think complicated grief is that you sort of stay in the more acute, like you're, you're not able to integrate the grief and, and as you say, find joy, find a purpose in your life mm-hmm. beyond the grief. But mm-hmm. I would like you to give us a definition of what complicated grief is. Okay. Well, Biz, that's pretty much spot on. Um, okay. And so I want to say that um, complicate grief is always complicated. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, it's, I think about my own experience. Like, so my dad died three years ago mm-hmm. and our relationship was really complicated. Like mm-hmm. I know he loved me, but there was a lot of shitty things that happened yeah. in our relationship. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was like, I'm grieving and yet I was angry too. Mm-hmm. So like there was a lot, it was messy. Mm-hmm. And so. see, if we don't have permission to know that it's okay to be angry with the people we love, if we can't honor the truth mm-hmm. of what the relationship was. Um, then we can end up in what has been called complicated grief, which we're now shifting to referring to um, uh, as prolonged grief disorder. And okay. just just saying prolonged grief disorder makes it easier to understand what it yes. Really is. Yes. So yes. at present, the um, ICD-11 uh, gives the criteria of at least six months since the loved one has died, where the person is somehow, quote, stuck in this grief process, they are, they haven't been able to successfully integrate the grief. The DSM-5 has it as a uh, um, uh, persistent bereavement, as a diagnosis that needs further research. Um, It's also listed as an other trauma and stressor-related disorder. Hmm. But the committee that, um, has been working on that, quote, further research, Um, the DSM-5 team has decided that in its next edition, whatever that might be, you know, DSM-5 oops or (laughs) DSM-5 TR. (laughs) Right, point point two. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, 
that it's going to be referred to as prolonged grief disorder consistent with the ICD-11, but they're proposing a year-long period if mm. after a year um, an individual is still, their grief is interfering with their day-to-day functioning, um, then um, they would have that diagnosis. So it's sort of, you know, the time frames are important, but they're not carved in stone. If yeah. somebody at six months is really suffering and there's a, 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 a evidence-based treatment that you can offer them, like complicated grief therapy, you don't need to wait a year right. Um, right. you know, to begin that process. So it's characterized by um, people get derailed in the process. So what complicated or quote prolonged grief looks like is that the person is um, somehow stuck in survivor's guilt. You know, um, I'm still living. This was my child. You know, I'm supposed, I I didn't have my child for them to die. They should have buried me. Or had I known they were so sad, I would have reached out or, you know, encouraged them to go talk to therapist. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, people get stuck in the what if, you know, imagining um, scenarios that if they just hadn't taken that um, vacation, they wouldn't have had the car accident. Yeah. You know, um, they may get stuck in anger and bitterness, you know, if they don't really feel that they have permission to feel. It's not nice to say um, bad things about dead people, you know. Right, right, right. It's so true. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, people can get stuck there if they move into what's referred to as uh, uh, complicated spiritual grief that um, if they're questioning, like, how could a God that I believed would, you know, um, because take I take this person or right, yeah, from yeah. me, from me. Yeah. Mm. And, or, or what type of God would let such a violent thing happen? Mm. Um, they can get stuck there. Um, mm-hmm. They can get stuck in um, the fear of approaching things that remind them, the triggers of things that remind them of their loved ones. So they're excessively avoiding or excessively clinging to, you know, mm. you see people who um, may or may not be a hoarder, but they, the room, for example, um, of their loved one is just the same as they left it when they, five years ago when they died. Right. You know, right. Mm-hmm. so it's that stuckness and these are some of the common derailers that get people stuck. You yeah. know, um, if they haven't had support or they feel like um, their grief doesn't look like it's supposed to, again, not just the five stages of grief, but you know, society, we have all types of prescriptions for people. You should cry a lot, but then not after this time. And after a week, you should go back to work and be okay. And you Right, know. right. You can take your, you can take your week of uh, bereavement uh, leave, but then you should be fine. Right. Get, <laughs> right. Deal with it, get over it, come on back, and we'll act like nothing happened. Yeah. Um, so by the time that people get to complicated grief, if you will, or prolonged grief, people are tired of listening. Mm-hmm. We don't have the top, people don't really have a tolerance in the first place because it triggers their own loss. They don't know what to do. They don't yeah. understand that certain aspects are lifelong. And so if they don't have the support or people don't understand, that sort of sets them up for prolonged grief also. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious, can prolonged grief um, come about? Can we experience prolonged grief from, say, not necessarily a death, but like the loss of our relationship or, you know, divorce or um, something like that? Well, you know, that's really, uh, thank you for that question. It's a wonderful question. And in theory, yes. However, 
the quote diagnosis of complicated or prolonged grief is only um, as it relates to the death of a loved one, mm-hmm. um, a, a death. Yeah. Um, but we acknowledge, meaning we, you know, people who are in the, um, you know, field of grief, that anytime we lose something of value or let go of it ourselves, there is um, a loss, there's a sense of loss, and there's a grief process that we need to honor. And so many people get stuck in the grief around the loss of a, a relationship, divorce, you know, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so typically that ends up being called depression. Um, okay. And, and, you know, a lot of times that, that's another thing of the, about the five stages, the idea of depression. Depression is something different than grief. And we really need to be able to distinguish between the two. So what ends up happening is that people who are in extended or long-term grief after a divorce, for example, and if you think about it, there are many losses, uh, secondary losses, like maybe the loss of financial security, loss of meaning and living. When you get a divorce, you know, I'm no longer a husband or a wife and all of that. That's very similar to uh, what we experience the secondary losses after the death of a loved one. But yeah. we typically look at that and call it depression rather than, you know, prolonged grief. Yeah, that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, clinically to be able mm-hmm. to sort of, yeah, have it in yeah. its own little yeah. compartments. Yeah. But it actually feels really the same for a lot of people. And yeah. one of the things about divorce is that, or breakup, um, you can always hold on to the hope, false or real, who knows, that mm-hmm. we might be able to reconcile. Mm-hmm. Um, but when somebody dies, what we know is that they're not coming back in the same physical way in this lifetime right. um, ever. Right, right. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so how do you help uh, your clients move from complicated grief to integrated grief? Okay. The first Um, The most important thing is really the same as uh, when we're working with anybody else. It's being fully present with the person. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly important with um, like trauma, you know, any type of trauma and grief is often traumatic, even if the person didn't die traumatically, you know, um, the abrupt absence of, or even if you know the person is dying, the abrupt reality of them no longer being here is traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time somebody shows up, it could be six months, a year, 10 years um, with complicated or prolonged grief. People have stopped listening long, long ago. Mm-hmm. People have stopped being able to, if at all, witness the profound death of their grief. So um, that's first and foremost, that you are present and that you can hold their grief you know, without making it about you. Right. And um, so I, I, clients come to me and tell me, you know, they've seen therapists before who had to get up and excuse themselves to go to the bathroom repeatedly. And it's like, what's happening here? That it was triggering a therapist or feeling like, Oh, if, wow. Yeah. If I really go to the depths of my emotional pain, this person won't be able to tolerate. And they worry about needing to take care of, you know, the therapist yeah. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention family members um, who aren't trained, you know, are mm-hmm. mental health professionals at all. So yeah. that's the first part. And then there is um, an evidence-based protocol, um, 16 to 20-ish 
session um, semi-structured protocol mm -hmm. um, that was developed by a psychiatrist, Kathy Shear, who is at uh, Columbia University now. She uh, founded the Center for Complicated Grief, which is where I did my training in complicated grief and where I'm still an associate and in relationship with she and um, uh, you know the other uh, therapists and trainers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, um, it, uh, there are components of um, um, CBT-like components. There are some um, parts that come from motivational interviewing some parts that are, you know, like exposure therapy from behavioral um, therapy. So it's sort of a, um, a mix of um, aspects that help us to let the person get through, the, get unstuck and get through the task of grief, you know. So mm -hmm. it's like helping them to deal with the avoidance of activities. We set it up in a very behavioral way, situational revisiting, it's called where we like if they're having difficulty um, looking at photographs or, or for example, watching um, television shows that they used to watch with their loved one, you know, yeah. we might start with choosing one of those shows, looking at the level of anxiety that comes up and thinking about that as well as the level of desire to do it. Maybe watching five minutes, right? You know, right. next week doing more, but just helping people with everything that's got them blocked um, with the ways of thinking um, the counterfactual, we talk about it, ways of thinking that had I done this and, you know, maybe they wouldn't have died or, you know, they hadn't taken that vacation. Um, helping them to integrate the complexities of the loved one. Like you said, with your father, you know, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I too had a really complicated relationship with my dad. It was like crazy love, but there was some complicated stuff. In <laughs> yeah. Being able yeah. to help the person to fully integrate that and, and be okay with that. Um, helping them to uh, recognize their ongoing connection with the person. There's a series of memory worksheets that they get in a particular sequence. Um, mm. You know, um, there's uh, helping them to tell the story of the death, sort of taking the therapist back with them. Um, to bring the grief forward again from the moment they learned of the death and helping them to reprocess it. Hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah. it sounds like it's a very um, um, sort of um, not necessarily step-by-step because -step, I'm sure everybody's experiences are different, but right. there is kind of a prescribed way to move through this right. to help them That's then right. go to the integration. Mm -hmm. That's right. And like I said, it's um, several studies have been done that, um, suggests that it's the efficacy of this particular protocol with modifications as needed, as you just mentioned, mm -hmm. um, is, is uh, more effective than CBT, than interpersonal therapy and, and, and others, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I have to say that I sit in such gratitude for it having found me really, um, because it's really transformational work that happens. It's mm -hmm. really transformational work. I bet. I mean, to yeah. go from a place of just being, you know, so caught up in the grieving process that you can't move forward, that it must be, yeah, just so transformational to be able to then say, okay, I can not stop grieving because we are, you know, the people we love will always be in our hearts, but you can let it go to the extent that you can and move forward. Absolutely. With joy and purpose. Mm. you know, would see with new eyes, you know, um, 
And I often think about the um, metaphor of a butterfly, you know, mm, yes. um, sort yes. of those really ugly and unrecognizable stages, you know, mm-hmm. or really painful, um, rather than ugly, but painful um, mm-hmm. parts. And the, you, in the end, can become this beautiful, um, emotionally free, or uh, at least in part, emotionally free, you know. Yeah who can, you know, leave the therapy and, you know, not recognizing who you were before, Mm. you know. um, Nice. mm -hmm. Sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. So I want to touch briefly before we we wrap this up, because I know there's been a, um, well, with the time we're living in, with the pandemic, with all the losses we're feeling around, just our way of life that's been kind of taken away from us. What are you seeing as far as the pandemic and loss and how is that all affecting us? Ooh. Um, I know that's a big question. It's a big question. So I'm going to do it in two parts. Let me talk about first the um, losses. Uh, Ken Doka talks about, um, who's a death, dying and bereavement expert, talks about... um, he um, offered us the idea of disenfranchised grief, mm-hmm. grief that um, isn't really recognized or isn't socially acceptable to recognize, you know, um, and it's everything that we um, are experiencing as a result of the pandemic, and especially because of the way that it's being managed or not managed. Um, mm. yeah. um, um, so that, you know, there's um, one, a big loss, secondary loss is the loss of the illusion of control. Um, that's how we hold ourselves together is with this illusion that we have some control over our lives Um, (laughs) oh yes yeah right right, exactly (laughs) and this pandemic you know where you can um, be as careful as humanly possible and still contract it and you don't know uh, what the course of the illness will be if you're going to survive and all of that just strips that away you know, there's the loss of physical touch. Mm. You know, um, hugging. So, yes, yes. That has been very hard for me. Yes, you know, um, and, and I mean, hormonally, I mean, oxytocin is released when we hug mm-hmm. um, our loved ones, you know. And I'll just say this, speaking of, um, I'm thinking back to um, equine therapy. If you have a dog or cat, um, oh. Yeah, the, and and I know you have a dog. <laughs> I do. Yes. Um, yes. you know they they're all. I think our animals are emotional support. You know, therapists for us, even if they don't have a little jacket or a little collar. Yes. You know. Yes. They they pick up on so much, and even if they're not picking up on it, it's like to me, one of my favorite things is if my dog comes to sit next to me to just like pause. Just touch him, feel his fur, you know, Mm -hmm. notice his movements, Mm -hmm. like when he wants to lick my face, Mm -hmm. like it just is very grounding. And Mm -hmm. as like with equine therapy, like they're so present with us. Right, right. Nice. Mm -hmm. And accepting, loving, always happy to see his unconditional love all the time. Yes. And so in this pandemic, I want to recommend that you, you know, give them extra treats for their work, but hug, hug, (laughs) hug. Love on them and let them love on you. It's um, oxytocin is released in our in our dogs and cats too, so it's yeah. really beneficial. So we're missing that, 
you know, there's the lack of security, um, even for people who are able to work from home. Um, yeah. For us, you know, as uh, mental health professionals, we don't know there's the ebb and flow normally, but particularly during the pandemic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, for people, a lot of people, the loss of um, um, physical safety, they're um, losing their um, place of residence, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Or know, their businesses or right. yeah. Yeah. food insecurity. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of secondary losses. Now, the, well, and two, I just want to touch on just the impact that it's having on the minority communities too, mm-hmm, that, that, mm-hmm. that there's great, like for a lot of reasons, but you know, they live much closer, to, oftentimes live much closer together. There isn't a way to protect them as easily, but also they're not getting the medical care or trusting the medical care that they, they might get if they reached out. It's true. And also they're usually uh, essential workers pay less. Yes, yes, um, yes. Having to work, right. And right. with people face-to-face. and Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then if we move away from the intersection of socioeconomic status and uh, race or ethnicity, the marginalization, even um, people of color who are, quote, uh, well-to-do um, have a greater incidence of all types of chronic illnesses. Um, right. Right. That, you know, and that's a 400 year history that's beyond our podcast. But yes, the yes. Um, the 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 physical impact of racial trauma every day of our living puts us at greater risk for if we do contract the uh, COVID-19 to have mm-hmm. complications and to the likelihood of dying is greater. Right. Um, so, right. yeah. So it's it's really complex. But what I do want to say is that. COVID-19 is no different than any other illness because of um, our history of marginalization in this country, and I'm speaking in regard to all people of color, including immigrants, then we are at greater risk for all types of chronic illnesses anyway, you know, um, and death and, you know, all of that. Yeah. Um, But I also wanted to speak about how the death of loved ones during the pandemic um, is is also increasing the likelihood of complicated grief or prolonged grief for people, and one is that more pe- you're, you're likely to lose more people in a shorter period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, in families where um, everybody's infected and two, three family members die in a week's time or a month's time or three months' time, yeah. that's you know um, you're compounding the grief processes. You can't get through one before there's another, and it's dramatic, and we're more likely to um, experience complicated grief if we feel like the death didn't have to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the pandemic, we know, and the different estimates have varied, but you know, 100,000, tens of thousands um, had uh, the president acted on what we now know he knew in February. Right. Um, you know, the virus wouldn't have um, spread in the way that it has. And there would have been fewer deaths. So it's hard to find meaning, as Robert Niemeyer has been talking about for over 20 years, and getting to peace around somebody dying when, honestly, they really didn't, quote, have to, unless, of course, on a more spiritual level, you can reconcile that um, this is the way that it was supposed to be. But it's, it's harder to get to that when people are dying, when they really don't have to. particularly under these circumstances. And the other thing I want to say um, in trying to still be mindful of time is, okay, is that we don't get to 
uh, having our grief witness is so important and having people around us um, to just, bring us, yeah. go ahead, yeah, yeah. To, to support us and yeah, to be with mm-hmm. us in this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't do that or yeah. we do it at risk, you know, um, and yeah. thank goodness for, you know, um, technology. So, you know, you can do virtual funerals and things like that, but it's not the same. Some people can't even um, retrieve their loved one's bodies because they're in a, um, yeah. uh, a refrigerator truck, right? You know, um, you know, and more, uh, you know, morgues are overflowing and funeral homes. And when, if you couldn't, if you couldn't even be with them in a hospital while they were dying, like to, to be through that process. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's absolutely right. Thank you for mentioning that. That is so crucial. And Mm. while we often are not with our loved ones when they die, what happens in grief is that that's one of the what ifs. If I could have, if they would have, or I would have been able to have been with them, then maybe they wouldn't have quote suffer. It's the wondering if, did they suffer because they were alone and, you know, right. Did they know I was thinking about them and they're like, yeah, yeah. Right. So I want to really, um, there are only around 30 of us, um, around 40 in the world, about 30 of us here who are, um, trained in complicated grief and also have, um, gained expertise. A lot of people have done the level one and two training, um, but as, as a, to become a practitioner, you do the training and then you, you know, you need to get the experience. Um, sure. so there are more of us who have done the training. There might be maybe 150 and, and, you know, and have done the, the actual training to learn the protocol. Um, you can learn it without, you know, showing up for the training. You can buy the manual and all that, but all of that to say, we need so many more of us, <laughs> to yeah. do this training because we are going to, um, we are beginning to, and we'll continue to see an onslaught of people who are really struggling with grief as a result of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so we yeah. need more practitioners. Yes, indeed. I agree. I agree. Well, if, if listeners wanted to know more about mm-hmm. complicated grief and yeah. how to find you, if they wanted to work with you, how do they do that? Okay, so I want to first um, um, offer in terms of resources for therapists, as well as um, the public for this, the Center for Complicated Grief, and it's uh, complicatedgrief.columbia.edu. Awesome, um, thank you. Yeah, and so even though it's about, quote, complicated grief, it's also about acute grief, and mm-hmm. there are um, a wealth of resources, videos, and things around um, coping with grief in the pandemic, and just a wealth of information. There's continuing education training, including the learning protocol, but just webinars about suicide and grief and um, Mm. from scholars from around the world. Oh, nice. Um, So, and there's also a therapist directory there to find me and other people who are trained. Um, And if you're looking, if you're dealing with acute grief, if you seek out any therapist who's trained in complicated grief, they will know about, of course, acute grief. You'll be in good arms and hands, if you will, if you reach out to them. And if you're interested in learning more about me or working with me, um, my website is drsonyalott.com, D-R-S-O-N-Y-A-L-O-T-T.com. Awesome. And my contact information is there, email and uh, phone numbers on the website. 
Nice. Well, I will definitely include that, your Facebook page, the Center for Complicated Grief, all in the show notes so people can easily access them there. Well, Sonia, thank you so much for for sharing your expertise, but spending time with us on the podcast today. I really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Biz. Again, I'm really grateful. Um, I was grateful for the invitation and, and, and to be in communion with you in this way via podcast. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Sonia. Uh-huh. That was quite a conversation and filled with a lot of information about acute grieving, integrated grief, as well as complicated grief. I encourage you, if you want to know more, to check out Sonia's website, as well as the Center for Complicated Grief. There's a, it's, it's a very easy to access information as far as easy to understand. It's not super clinical. And um, if you feel like you're stuck in your grief or grieving, then check that out because I think we do tend to, as a culture, we are clinging to this outdated unresearched or or non-unvalidated research around the stages of grief and grieving, and they're not relevant. They're They're not proven. They don't hold up to science. And I think sometimes when we feel like we should be moving forward or we haven't gone through this particular stage, we can pile on the shame and the the guilt about why we can't move on or why we're not grieving in the right way, when really, that's just not true. You're just grieving. You are where you are. Uh, And if you do feel like you're stuck, maybe you are in a cycle of complicated grief and there's help. There's ways to move through and forward so that, as Sonia said, you can live a life filled with joy and purpose, which is what you deserve. Well, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. As I said, you can find out all of the uh, links in the show notes for this episode, and you can also find links to sign up for the newsletter. So if you want to have the podcast episodes delivered to your inbox and you want to make sure you're not missing anything, I also offer just some mindfulness tips as well as a little bit of where I am in the world at that moment. So you can find that at progressioncounseling.com forward slash Elizabeth's dash newsletter. I hope you all have a wonderful week. I hope you all take care of yourselves if you're grieving or have lost a loved one. I hope you can find some peace and joy. Ciao for now from this woman warrior. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Woman Warriors Podcast. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Music was written and performed by Andy Cush. If you'd like more information on this episode, you can find the show notes, the resources shared today, and links to the guest profiles at womanwarriors.com.